and preached unto him Jesus. This wonderful phrase, he preached unto him Jesus. There is a sense in which this is the task of the church, to preach unto men and women everywhere, Jesus. And so what I want to do is I want to use this passage of Scripture uh, as, the, as the basis for our recollection or our basis for our time at the table of the Lord here today. We will see in this passage of Scripture, as I said before, uh, the Lord Jesus Christ presented to us from the Scripture. Three things I want you to see in this passage of Scripture, and this will kind of determine our outline. The first thing that we will see is how that Christ is present everywhere in the Scripture. It's a wonderful thing, isn't it? We open up the Word of God, and who do we see? We see Jesus Christ. And I would say this to you. Use this as something of a barometer of your reading of Scripture. When you read the Scripture, do you see more of Christ? This is vital. This is necessary. So the first thing we will see here is this presentation of Christ in the Scripture. The second thing I want you to see from this passage of Scripture from Acts chapter 8 is that we will see Christ not only in the Scripture, but we will see Christ as our substitute in the Scripture. It is Christ as a lamb that is put forth. It is, the, it is Christ as a sheep before his shearers who goes to the cross for you and for me in order that we might have acceptance with God the Father. And then the third thing I want you to see from this passage of Scripture is that Christ is the focus of all gospel preaching. What, what preaching must be is an exposition and a presentation of the Lord Jesus Christ on the basis as he is revealed in the Scripture. Philip opened his mouth and preached unto him Jesus. I hope by the grace of God to do that very same thing today to you, to open up the scripture and to preach unto you Jesus. And I hope that I can present Jesus to you in such a way as to compel your heart to believe on him savingly, to move your heart from wherever it may be, to rest in faith in Jesus Christ. This is the great thrust of scripture. And so we'll take a look at this all today. Well, the first thing I want you to do is to take a look at, uh, at, the, at the Word of God uh, with the first point in mind is that to notice how that the Scriptures reveal to us our need for Jesus Christ. The Scriptures reveal to us our need for Jesus Christ. And this is something that we can't get away from. The Scripture over and over again is really designed, number one, to expose the sin of the sinner. I understand when I say these things, I'm, I'm kind of entering into to, uh, something of tender territory, if I can put it that way. I know you've come here this morning to worship God, to worship the Lord Jesus Christ, but you must understand that the Scripture always sets before you your great need before God. You see, by nature and by choice, you and I are sinners. And this is what the Scripture reveals to us over and over again. And it's an amazing thing as we look at this, at this very noble man, the Ethiopian eunuch. He would have been aware of this. And the reason why we say he would have been aware of this is because he was reading from Isaiah 53. And what did Isaiah 53, how does Isaiah 53 read? All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. Again, we re he was reading of the fact that the Lord laid upon this one the iniquity of us all. You see, the scriptures reveal to us our great need for the Lord Jesus Christ. But as we come to this man in Acts chapter 8 in verses, uh, in verses 27 and following this, this Ethiopian eunuch, this is, this is something of a, a very significant man that we see on the pages of Scripture here. You know, oftentimes we rightly uh, give emphasis to uh, 1 Corinthians that where Paul reminds us that not many mighty, not many noble after the flesh are called. Well, the Ethiopian eunuch is an exception to that. He's one of the noble. He's one of the mighty. He was a very significant man in his day. He was a man, again, when we look at there were many things that were commendable about him. 
Again, the scripture reminds us that he was a eunuch. Now, sometimes this, uh, this term is used by those uh, who, are no, who are unable to have children. Uh, sometimes it's used of those who give, the, give their lives in devotion to a particular task. Whatever it may mean of the Ethiopian eunuch in this case, what it means is essentially this. He was a man who was given over to the task that was in front of him. He was a man of great authority, the scriptures tell us. And he basically held, held to an, a position that in our day we would refer to as something like the, tre- like the uh, secretary of the treasury. He was a very, very important man. Not only was he an important man by way of his title and by way of his calling, he was something of a religious man as well. He was probably, he was probably a proselyte to, uh, to Judaism. He was a man who would be termed as a God-fearer in the scripture. He may not have been a full convert to Judaism, but he was a man who was seeking truth by way of the Old Testament scriptures. And so not only was there a particular nobility by way of his achievements in life, there was also a particular nobility in the sense that he had now turned his back on his, on his native paganism and was now seeking the true God through the word of God, through the scripture. The other thing that we see about him by way of his nobility is the way that he interacts with Philip. Now you must understand this man as he is in his caravan riding uh, back to his home in Ethiopia. You must understand that he would have had all the trappings of achievement. He would have had all the trappings of importance. He would have been easily recognized as an official of state. And here was this man, Philip, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, running up to this caravan. And it would not have all been surprising if the Ethiopian eunuch would have said to himself, who is this strange man running up to the caravan? They would have been in the desert, and here comes Philip running up. And the Ethiopian eunuch, as I said before, shows himself to be something of a noble character. Philip runs up and asks a question out of the blue, do you understand what you read? And the Ethiopian eunuch is not offended that this commoner would ask him this question. This Ethiopian eunuch is not uh, put off by the fact that somebody would address him as to in, in some way expose ignorance. And the Ethiopian eunuch, the noble man that he was, he says, how can I unless somebody guide me? And at this point, Philip is taken up into the chariot, really probably a covered wagon. Again, when you stop and think of how people got around in those days, common people walked, wealthy people may have rode a donkey, Military generals would have ridden a horse. Significant and wealthy and powerful individuals would have been in a caravan. So you see all the trappings of importance is there. And so this man, this, this noble Ethiopian, he, he asked Philip into, into the chariot. This man will, will interact with uh, the scriptures and will, and, and will interact with uh, Philip in such a way as to, as to become a, a true convert to the Lord Jesus Christ. We'll get into all this. But I want you to see something more about this Ethiopian. Here's a man, as I said before, a very noble man. Here's a man who upon his conversion to faith in Jesus Christ becomes the catalyst of an entire region or an entire nation adopting Christianity as its formal religion or faith. It said in the year 327 AD, Ethiopia as a kingdom embraced Christianity in a formal way. This man, this Ethiopian eunuch, he would have been the first of many significant uh, African converts. When you look in the early history of the church, you see many of the bright lights, many of the leading theologians in the first 300 years or so of the church were from, from, from northern Africa. Men like Augustine, men like Cyprian, men like Tertullian. These are all great lights 
in the history of the church. All because of the conversion of this one man. Do you understand the value and the importance of one soul being converted? Do you understand the value and the importance of your being able to speak a word of God to those who are in need? Do you understand the implications of individuals coming to faith in Jesus Christ? My brothers and sisters, the world may not think much of you or me, but you understand you have the ability by way of the truth of God to have an impact in this world in which you live. Oh, don't think lightly of that. And so this man, this, this Ethiopian eunuch, this noble man, this man who is again of great interest to us. Another thing that's interesting is this, is that through this man's conversion, uh, there are certain uh, Old Testament scriptures, pro- prophetic scriptures that are fulfilled. I think of a passage of scripture like uh, Psalm 68, verse 31. The psalmist writes this, Princes shall come out of Egypt, and Ethiopia shall soon stretch out her hands unto God. You see, God is working in ways much larger uh, than what even Philip may be understood. And understand that Philip was, was there on the spot by way of the direct guidance of the Spirit of God. And we'll take Philip up in a, in a few short moments. But again, this Ethiopian unit. But I think what's most important for us in our sermon here today is, again, we use this sermon as a preparation for our celebration of the Lord's uh, Supper. The first thing I want you to see by way of what's primarily important is that through his experience, we learn that that God uses the scriptures to show to the sinner his need for Jesus Christ. God uses the scripture to show to sinners their need for Jesus Christ. Why do I say this? Because again, as I said earlier, he was dealing with the scripture, that place in Isaiah 53 that is really laying out man's need and God's provision in and through the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And this is again what the scripture is always doing. It's making known your condition and my condition and making known God's provision in Jesus Christ. Is not Jesus Christ again the focus of all the scripture? He says this himself in John chapter 5 verse 39. You search the scriptures, for in them you think ye have eternal life. And these are they, Jesus says, which testify of me. The scriptures testify of Christ. This is why I say, when you open up the word of God, look for the Lord Jesus Christ on the pages of scriptures. He's there. He's there by way of his own testimony. In Luke chapter 24, verse 44. And he said unto them, these are the words which I spake unto you while I was yet with you. That all the things must be fulfilled which were written in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms concerning me. Again, the three great divisions of the Old Testament, the law of Moses, uh, the script, uh, the, the, I'm sorry, the law of Moses, uh, the prophets, and the Psalms. The three great divisions all speak about Jesus Christ. Find the Lord Jesus Christ on the pages of Scripture. Well, not only do the Scriptures reveal to us the Lord Jesus Christ, as I said before, the Scriptures reveal to us the, the method and the means whereby God saves sinners. Yes, I want to say that again. Here was this Ethiopian eunuch, and he was, he was reading the Word of God. He was doing the right thing. And it's very interesting, because when we look at this Ethiopian eunuch, there were many things that we would think in his life would have satisfied him. But he's in this chariot in something of a, of a discontented state. He's in this chariot still seeking. Now, here was a man who had achieved great significance and fame within the world in which he lived. Again, Comparably, he would be called the, 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 the secretary of the treasury in our day. He was a man, again, in our day, you know, you see on your dollar bills, there's a, the signature of the treasury of the secretary, I'm sorry, the, the secretary of the treasury. This man would have achieved much by way of human accomplishment. 
He, was, he had made the right decision in one sense and turning away from his old paganism to the, the revelation that God had given in the Old Testament Scriptures, but he had yet not come to faith in Christ. And there was something of a discontent there. And therefore, I'm saying to you that in the state of discontentedness, the Scripture reveals to us the way whereby our souls can be made content in Christ. And that is through the salvation that God offers in the person of Jesus Christ. We read this again in a number of places. And what I want you to see is that how God uses His Word in order to bring about salvation. This is something that you cannot lose or must not lose sight of. That God, in bringing sinners to salvation, uses His Word. Why do I say that? You know, for many of us, it's not uncommon to talk with our friends and our co-workers and our family members. And sometimes they tell us of these, of these great experiences that they've had. And sometimes they tell us of, of things that they believe that they've seen or, or some types of visitations that they've said that they've had. I'm saying to you here and now, as tenderly as I can, you must understand that God leads individuals to salvation through the Word. The Word of God is the means and the vehicle through which God makes the sinner aware of his need and by which God points to his Son. This is my beloved Son. So experiences in one sense must be set aside. Visions, whatever people say to us, must be set aside. And you and I must let's see, like we see here on the pages of Scripture, that God always uses His Word to bring about salvation. This is why Paul said to Timothy in 2 Timothy 3.15, that from a child thou hast known the holy scriptures, which are able to make thee wise unto salvation. This is the purpose of the scripture, to make you wise unto salvation. Other passages bring out this emphasis on the word of God as having the central place in our salvation. James chapter 1, verse 18, James says this, Of his own will begat he us with the word of truth. How did God beget you? How did God save you? It was, the, it was with the word of truth. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 23, being born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible, by the word of God. How were you and I born again? It was by the word of God. And so what I want you to see and what I want you to understand that is this Ethiopian eunuch is riding along in his chariot as he has the, the scripture open in front of him. He sees something of his need. He sees something of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it is the very means, the very vehicle by which God will bring forth salvation through the word of God. The scriptures reveal to the sinner their need, but they also reveal to the scripture. I'm, I'm sorry, they also reveal to the scripture of the person of Jesus Christ. And this is again my, my third point and my, my third sub-point in the first point, and it's essentially this that as I said before, the scriptures reveal to man that he is a sinner. In fact, this would have been much on the mind of the Ethiopian eunuch. Having or in the process of reading Isaiah 53, and we're going to see he was in verses 7 and 8, he would have also have read verses 5 and 6. And verses 5 and 6 of Isaiah 53 is as follows He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquity. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. Oh, we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid upon him the iniquity of us all. What are the common themes that we see here? Number one, we see the idea of substitution, very much in, very much in the atmosphere of this passage of Scripture. It's what we have done and what he has done for us. We also see the reality of the fact of our own sin. Again, the Lord laid upon him the iniquity of us all. And so here is the Lord Jesus Christ. Here is the, here is the Ethiopian uh, uh, eunuch confronted with his sin. 
And my friends, I must ask you the question, have you been confronted with your sin as you sit in these pews here today? Have you been confronted with the reality of your sin and what that means? What it means to stand before a holy God with iniquity upon your soul? Where can a man stand? Where can a woman stand who is guilty before God in this fashion? Where can he stand? He can, can I say, can I tell you where he can stand? He can stand under the cross of Jesus Christ and find forgiveness. Yes, all we like sheep have gone astray. Do you consider yourself, do you count yourself among those sheep who have gone astray? Isn't it wonderful that this, that this Ethiopian uh, eunuch, in, in, uh, in spite of all the nobility that he carried in his person, wasn't in any way offended by, be, by being referred to as a, of, need, of needing a savior? No, this man understood. The word of God penetrated his soul. You see, this is the effect of the word of God. It pierces the soul. It divides the son of the soul and the spirit. And so, and so again, the, the importance of the word of God in this whole matter. And so we see here then the Ethiopian eunuch, through the word of God, understood his need for the Lord Jesus Christ because he saw and he understood his sin. Well, the second thing I want to draw your attention to now as we, as we again emphasize our observation of the Lord's uh, table here today, the second thing I want you to see from this passage of Scripture is what I've already mentioned, but I want to give it some emphasis now, is the fact that not only does the Scripture reveal to us our sin, but the Scripture, in a very wonderful way, reveals to us the person of our Savior, Jesus Christ. This is what we see especially. This is what's emphasized here. This second point, in one sense, is really kind of a parallel to what we'll be observing in the Lord's Supper here today. Because here we will see the great emphasis given to the reality of our Lord Jesus Christ giving himself for sinners. Well, here what we see then is, is this in Acts chapter 8, verses 32 and 34. Just look at where there with me. Acts chapter 8, verses 32 and 34. We read the following. The place of the scripture which he read was this. He was led as a sheep to the slaughter, and like a lamb dumb before his shearers, so he opened not his mouth. In his humiliation, his judgment was taken away, and who shall declare his generation? For his life is taken from the earth. And the eunuch answered Philip and said, I pray thee, of whom speaketh the prophet this, of himself or some other man? Well, let's take a look step by step at this passage of Scripture. The first thing I want you to see and understand is notice how Christ is presented in this passage of Scripture from Isaiah. He is, again, the sheep. He is that lamb. He is that one who fulfills everything by way of what the Passover signified. He is the true Passover of God. And in this passage of Scripture, we see a number of things about our Lord Jesus Christ as a lamb or as a sheep. Number one, we see him in the voluntary nature of his work. Did you notice that when Isaiah says he opened not his mouth? There was a voluntariness. There was a willingness in the carrying out of the work of redemption. The second thing that we see is that we see his, his substitute. The substitution that he undertook for you and me is very clear in the pages of Scripture as well. He was as a sheep and he was as a lamb. Again, this is speaking specifically of Christ as our Passover lamb. Thirdly, we see something about our Lord's willingness to undergo our redemption, even though it must cost him great by way of his own humiliation. You understand when the Lord Jesus Christ died for you and for me, he was in a state of abject humiliation. You see and you understand when Christ died for you and me, he was stripped away of all dignity as it were. He was in the true sense of the word forsaken by God for you and for me. The gospel, my brothers and sisters, the gospel. 
And then lastly, we see in this passage of Scripture something of the mysterious nature of his work. And we see this in the words of who shall declare his generation. You see, there's something, in a, there's something of a mystery in this work of redemption, is there not? How is it that God should love a sinner such as I? How is it that God would be willing to send his only begotten son? How is it that I, child of hell, should now be called the child of grace in heaven? There's something of a mystery in all this, isn't it? But this is what God does in the gospel. And I hope and I pray that you embrace this by faith. And so again, notice how the Lord Jesus Christ is represented to us in this passage of Scripture. Well, primarily then, he's represented to us in this passage as a lamb, is he not? And you must understand that this becomes one of the the great designations for the Lord Jesus Christ in all of Scripture. You know, sometimes I think we're aware how important the term, the lamb of God, is. But I think sometimes we don't understand just how common it is in the Scripture. Do you know that if you read through the book of Revelation, you will find that Jesus Christ is referred to as a lamb 25 times. 25 times in the book of Revelation, it's the lamb. The lamb is all the glory, we might say, as the the old hymn says. The lamb is all the glory in the Father's land. And so again, here is the Lord Jesus Christ presented to us. And again, this idea as a a lamb is is significant in 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 the remainder of the scripture as well. There is John the Baptist, and he sees the Lord Jesus Christ walking. And what does he say? You know what he says. Behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. There is the Apostle Peter writing. And what does he say? He says that you and I were redeemed, not with a silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ as a lamb without spot or blemish. You see, the Lord Jesus Christ in this, in this passage of Scripture is presented to the Ethiopian eunuch as a lamb who died in substitution for the eunuch himself, the lamb who died in substitution for you and for me, the lamb whose death we memorialize on the table here today. You see this communion sermon all designed to bring us to a focus on that wonderful death that Jesus Christ experiences for you and me. As I said before, the substitutionary nature of, the, of, of, of his sacrifice is emphasized over and over again. Again, the very picture of a lamb is pointing to the reality of Christ as our Passover. This is how Paul refers to the Lord Jesus Christ, doesn't he? 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 7. Purge out the old leaven that ye may be a new lump as ye are are unleavened, for even Christ, our Passover, is sacrificed for us. Christ, our Passover, is sacrificed for us. There's the imagery of the Lamb. There's the truth of substitution. Christ, our our Passover, is sacrificed for us. Substitution. Other passages, again, bring out this very important theme of substitution. 1 Peter 3, verse 18. For Christ has also suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust. Substitution. Luke chapter 22, verses 19 and 20, the very words of institution of our Lord Jesus Christ of the Lord's Supper. Luke, Luke 22, and he took bread and he gave thanks and he broke it and gave it unto them saying, listen to what he says, this is my body which is given for you. Substitution. And so here is the Lord Jesus Christ on the pages of scripture, both Old and New Testament, presented as a substitute for sinners. What have you done with this sacrifice, my friends? Is this sacrifice truly yours? Do you understand it by way of the acquiescence of everything within you into what God offers by way of faith in Jesus Christ? That your embrace of Christ is a saving embrace. 
It's not merely intellectual in the mind. It's not merely religious by way of your social standing. It is the very fundamental reality of who you are. You are that person for whom Christ has died. Can you say that before God today? What is the mark of all this? The mark of all this is your coming to rest in Jesus Christ. We might say it this way to, to bring together something of, a, uh, something of a, a theological question here. What is the mark of election? The mark of election is faith in Jesus Christ. If you have come to believe savingly on Jesus Christ, that is the mark of God's electing you. And so again, this great emphasis on the work of Jesus Christ as a substitute for sinners. The, humiliate, the, 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 uh, the, the, the humiliating uh, aspect of the nature of his work is seen as well in this. It was, it was the eternal Son of God who humbled himself it was the eternal Son of God who, again, put off all of the external trappings of, whatever, of deity. It was the Son of God who gave up all the independent exercise of His attributes in order that He might be the substitute for sinners. He died in a state of humiliation and in a state of abject rejection from the Father. The Father turned His back. I think I said this last week or the week before last. The Father turned His back on His... He, the Father turned His face from His Son that He may never turn His face from you. Amen. You, see the, you see what the Lord Jesus Christ underwent. And so the one who was a lamb, the substitutionary lamb, who was it? It was none other than that wonderful and that glorious only begotten Son of God. And this is why John 3.16 is so significant. God so loved the world that He sent His best angel. Not even... God so loved the world that he raised up a good man, not even. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that through his substitutionary and through his through his substitutionary death and through his humiliation, people like you and me might be brought into a saving relationship with God. You see the wonder and the glory of the gospel. And so all these things are before us. Well, there's one more thing that we see in this passage of Scripture by way of our second point here, and that's the mysterious nature of His work. And the mysterious nature of His work is it can be presented to us in that little phrase, and who shall declare His generation? This is kind of an interesting little phrase, and, and I have to admit that the, that the commentators, are, uh, they vary here on the way they understand it. Some understand by this term, uh, who shall declare his generation. Uh, some understand it to mean that the Lord Jesus Christ would, need, would leave uh, no physical posterity. Uh, that there would be no generation to come behind him by way of his own physical posterity. Well, of course, we know that, that's the, that that would be the case for a number of reasons. Uh, but I don't even think that that really captures uh, uh, the mystery of what we see here. Others have uh, uh, used this phrase to point to, and this is something of a technical point, to point to what is sometimes called his eternal generation. In other words, how is it that this one, the Son of God, is eternally the Son of God, of one in essence with the Father and yet distinct from the Father? Well, I think that that's probably introducing a theological question that may not have been in the mind of Isaiah at that time, but again, leave it for, for, for what it is. Others think, uh, in contradiction from the first point, others think that what this phrase means, who can declare his generation, means that his spiritual offspring would be so many that they would be numberless. Who can declare how many he has? And I think there's something to be said for that. Isn't there, by way of the work of Jesus Christ, again, a great multitude that no man can number, of every nation, every tribe, every kindred, and every tongue? And we rejoice in this. But there's a fourth way in which some understand this, and I think this might come close to the truth. 
And I'll read what one commentator says. He says, some eminent interpreters explain the question, who shall declare his generation is meaning, who can describe the men of this generation? Men so criminal carrying out their wickedness to such a height and cutting him off from the land of the living. Who can fitly describe such a guilty generation? In other words, who can describe the wickedness of a generation of men that would put to death this precious lamb of God? I have another question, though, that we must ask. Who can describe the wickedness and the folly of a generation who would reject such a Savior? If you think it's amazing that men should put this one to death, how much more amazing is it that in our generation men still refuse to come to Him? Who can understand this, the mystery? And so again, here we have the Lord Jesus Christ presented to us. And aren't we glad that this Ethiopian eunuch was not one of those who rejected the Lord Jesus Christ? He saw his need from the pages of Scripture. He saw Jesus Christ on the pages of Scripture. But the third thing that he had was this. He had a man under the inspiration of the Spirit of God, a man full of faith in the Holy Spirit who knew how to open his mouth at that Scripture and preach unto him Jesus. I don't know if you noticed in the bulletin, the the, the sermon title is Philip preached unto him Jesus. What a wonderful thought. The proclamation of Jesus Christ from the lips of a man like Philip. And Philip was very interesting here because what we see is essentially this. Here was Philip again interacting with the question of the Ethiopian eunuch. And this question is a significant question. Is the man, is the prophet speaking of himself or someone else? And what does Philip say? Philip begins to show to him Jesus Christ. These questions though, you know it's your questions oftentimes that God uses to bring you to faith in Christ. It's those questions oftentimes that God uses to move you deeper into your obedience to Christ. As I said before about this Ethiopian, here he is still asking questions. He was a man who had achieved much in his life, but he still has questions. Here was a man who had turned his back on his former paganism, but he still had questions. Here was a man, again, who who had much by way of what people would think would make life life, but he still had questions. You see, God uses these questions in our lives. God uses our difficulties. God brings us into these corners where we ask ask these questions. And thank God when these questions are asked, God knows how to send individuals with the word of God in their heart and the name of Jesus upon their lips. And he opened the scripture and he preached unto him Jesus. And so again, what I want to do is I want to take a look at Philip, this man, in many ways a model preacher. Look at Philip here. We see him by way of his office. By way of his office, he was a deacon. We see this in Acts chapter 6, verse 3. Wherefore, brethren, look out among you seven men of honest report, full of the Holy Ghost and wisdom, who who we may appoint over this business. He was one of the early deacons. But did you notice his qualifications? What a man this was. He was a man of honest report. He was a good man. He was a man of integrity. There was no one who could besmirch his character. He was a man of honest report. But even more so, he was a man that was full of the Holy Ghost. Oh, for these men that are full of the Holy Ghost. For these people of God that are full of the Holy Ghost. Oh, you see, this is the great need in the church today. Men and women, even boys and girls, filled with the Holy Ghost. And so by way of his office, again, he was a a good man, an honest man, full of the Holy Ghost. By way of his gifts, he he was extraordinarily blessed. In Acts chapter 8, verse 6, we read this about Philip. And the people with one accord gave heed to those things which, which Philip spake hearing and seeing the miracles that he did. 
Not only was this a man who knew how to preach Christ, number two, this was a man who God had gifted and who God had used in an extraordinary way to bring about these miracles. Philip was a gifted man. He was not only a man who held an important office, he was a gifted man as well. He was a man of great usefulness to the kingdom of God. Verses 7 and 8 of Acts chapter 8. Again, for unclean spirits crying with a loud voice came out of many that were possessed with them, and many were taken with the palsies that were lame and healed, and there was great joy in that city. You see, the gospels that went forth gave great joy to that city. The gospel in a land brings great joy to the land. Sinners, again, who are hardened in their sin may, may dread days of gospel glory. But days of gospel glory in a land bring great blessing and great happiness to a people. May we see more of those days in our day. And so this was, this was Philip by way of his office, gifts, and usefulness. But really, he's a model preacher for us because he was full of the Holy Ghost. And he was willing, to, he, was, he was obedient to, 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 the, to, to the will of the Holy Spirit. Again, Acts chapter three, 6, verse 3, we've already looked at this. Uh, he was full of the Holy Ghost. But look at Acts chapter, uh, verse 8, verse 29. Acts chapter 8, verse 29. And the Spirit said unto Philip, go, go near and join thyself to this chariot. Aren't you glad that Philip didn't say, you mean that chariot? You mean that one with all that, with all that uh, importance and, and looks like so influential? You want me, Philip, to go speak to that man? And here was a man again, because under, under, the, under the work of the Holy Spirit, none of these things put him off. A man obedient to the moving of the Spirit of God within his life, under the, under the direction of the Word of God. Oh, brothers and sisters, may God raise up such men in our day today, and women as well, full of the Holy Ghost. He was a model preacher, again, like I says, because he was filled with the Spirit. He was obedient to the Spirit. But he was a model preacher because primarily he preached Christ. You have to understand that in this 8th chapter, three times we're told that Philip preached Christ. Acts chapter 8, verse 5. Then Philip went down to the city of Samaria and preached Christ unto them. Verse 12. But, they, but when they believed Philip and the preaching of the things of the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized. Acts chapter 8, verse 35. Then Philip opened his mouth and began the same scripture and preached unto him Jesus. He was a preacher of Jesus Christ. This is what made the difference. And this is what may, will make the difference in your life. Jesus Christ presented to you from the pages of Scripture. Jesus Christ presented to you, again, by way of the influence of the Spirit of God working deep within you. Here was this man, Philip, a model preacher. But he was also a model preacher for another reason. Because as we saw in our last point, he preached Christ not from his own experience, he preached Christ not from the latest discoveries of academic research. He preached Christ from the scriptures. He had an open Bible and he had an open mouth and he preached Christ. You see, this is the great need. And he wasn't, he wasn't afraid, if I can put it this way, or ashamed that in the presence of this very noble and important dignitary, he wasn't afraid to be some, can I put it this way, some old country bumpkin just preaching about Jesus. No, he preached Christ. And so in this reason, for, this, for these and other reasons, again, as I said before, he is the model preacher. He preached Christ from the scriptures. The preaching of Christ was the means of salvation and revival, and the same is true today. He did not preach his experience to the Ethiopian. He didn't say, oh, you should have seen before I met you. Oh, there were great things happening in Samaria. Boy, you missed it. You should have seen that. Oh, the Spirit of God fell in a great way. No, he preached Christ. 
He didn't preach. He didn't preach in such a way as to as to impress him with his with his extraordinary or his high office or his extraordinary gifts. He didn't say, Mr. Mr. Ethiopian eunuch, by the way, uh, I see you're a very important person. Well, I just want you to know I have a very important uh, role in the church. I have a very important office. He didn't do that. He preached Christ. Again, he opened his mouth from the scriptures and he preached Christ. He is a model preacher also because of this. He preached Christ, but he also preached what Christ commanded. Why do I say that? Well, you remember in Matthew chapter 28, as our Lord Jesus Christ speaks his, some of his final words to his disciples. And what does he say? Go into all the world, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Philip is a model preacher because not only did he preach Christ, but he preached what Christ commanded him to preach. He preached, again, the importance of baptism in the life of the Christian who was following Christ. You know how, this, how the account ends up. Philip again comes to water. Philip and the Ethiopian come to, come to water. And, and the Ethiopian eunuch is baptized. And what I want you to see is this. Philip preached the word of God in such a way as to stress the importance and the significance of the ordinances that Christ has left with his church. And so here today we come to one of the ordinances that Christ has left with his church. It is the ordinance of the Lord's Supper. And so in our closing moments, I, I ask you to consider the Lord's Supper and all that we're about to do. Now, when it's all said and done, this is not a sermon about two important men, Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch, but a sermon upon the one in whom these men found salvation, Jesus Christ. It is a sermon on a Savior who dies in an abject state of humiliation and rejection in order that men and women, boys and girls from every nation every, and every class might find forgiveness of sins and acceptance with God. It is a sermon about Jesus Christ who is proclaimed to us on the pages of Scripture and who is presented to us on the table of the Lord. My brothers and sisters, let us prepare our hearts.